Father, as we often pray, we, we don't simply want to get a, a better grasp of these verses or to understand them in our heads, but we want, with your help, to be those who, who encounter you and who are changed by your word. So be with us, please, as um, many of us coming to the end of busy weekends are looking ahead to busy weeks. Help us to hear what it is you are saying to us. Guard us, please, from simply going through the motions. Soften our hard hearts. Give us the kind of um, mindset we need as your word is read to us and then preached to us. And would you please speak to each of us this evening and would you change us as you speak? In your son's name we pray. Amen. So, we are in Revelation chapter 2, page 1234. Let me read for us. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now if you were here, I'm in the spring at all for our series in Revelation chapter 1, you remember that the big metaphor that we kept coming back to, which I think was really helpful, was the idea that as Christians, um, we are climbing flights of stairs. And the trouble is, everyone else is coming down. And they're getting a bit annoyed with us and there's a bit of sort of elbow knocking and and there's hustle and bustle and bumps and collisions and frustrations and a few tucks and and we're tempted even at times just to blend in. Just to turn around and go along with everyone else. It it would be easier, be less painful, less hassle because it's tiring going up, isn't it? It's exhausting at times. And sometimes we ask, is it, is it even worth going up the stairs anyway? Uh, and maybe it feels a bit more at the moment like there are more people coming down. Or maybe it feels a bit more like the steps are getting steeper and steeper. Is it harder to be a Christian than perhaps it used to be? And we said with that metaphor in mind, that picture, that idea, that there were definite parallels to the Christians that John was writing to Um, who are facing opposition, as you read through Revelation. And yet there was this comfort at the heart of chapter 1, because Jesus was with them. Do you remember the imagery, if you want to flick back to page 1, 2, 3, 3, the the imagery of the lamp stands there, at the end of chapter 1. Verse 13, for example, among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash round his chest. And one of these lampstands, verse 20, that the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches 
And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Don't, don't be afraid, persecuted Christians, we said. You might feel alone, but you're not alone. You might feel like it's only you left and you are in a, a tiny minority. But with Jesus on your side, you're going to be okay. You've not been forgotten. He's not left you. And that is such an encouragement for us as Christians. And yet, if you remember, the way we finished chapter 1 was a, was a striking idea that as you move from chapter 1 through to chapter 2 and 3, the letters to the different churches that, that John records for us from Jesus, Jesus seems pretty hard on a number of the churches. He's pretty harsh, actually. And we'll see that over the next few weeks as we go through it. But, and we think, but Jesus, they're being persecuted. Can you not give them a bit of slack? Why are you nailing them so much for stuff they're doing wrong? Why not just, just ignore their, fe- their failings for now and give them a bit of a stroke and a bit of a smile and come to those things at another time when it's a bit easier for them? Why is Jesus focusing in on stuff they're getting wrong? They are persecuted. So why is he zooming in? Well, I wonder if it's this. I think here's the concept. Jesus knows that in the midst of persecution, compromising churches just won't stand. I'll say that again. In the midst of persecution, compromising churches just won't stand. They won't last. And you see, as the temperature rises, as it gets harder to keep going, as for these Christians who have lost the gospel, either, either in what they believe or in how they behave, they're not going to keep climbing the stairs. It's going to feel too steep. It's going to be too easy just to turn around quietly and go down the stairs with everyone else. And so, in chapters 2 and 3, he writes to these seven key cities and to the seven churches based there. We'll do some more work in later weeks as to why these ones and why this order. But for now, just notice that they are key cities and there are focused and specific issues for each centre at this time. There's a specific situation. These are real people in real churches facing real difficulties with real encouragements and real challenges. These are real people. It's historically rooted. Technically, you would call us historicists as we read Revelation. They are the glasses through which we are reading Revelation. But I want to say it's more than that as well. So they are writing to specific situations, specific people, specific contexts. But I want to say we're idealists too, because maybe you say, well, I don't live in Ephesus. And so as we look at these lessons to this church in Ephesus, that's all very nice, but is it just simply an interesting historical study? Is that basically what's going on? You're just looking at a particular point in time and how the church was doing and that kind of stuff. Is it just history? Well, I want to say this. In Revelation, numbers numbers are really important. And so as you read seven churches, we're thinking seven, that's perfection, that's completeness. Seven is Bible talk for wholeness. And so as he writes to seven churches, I want to say he is writing to specific situations, but there's a sense in which he's writing to all churches, to all Christians, around the world, down the ages. It's general and broad and timeless. We can always say it's written for Christians like us. 
because it's seven. And as you read them, as we'll see, two are pretty dead, two are needing to revitalise and refocus, and three are doing okay. And you can kind of look around and think, well, probably those lessons and those truths actually are quite relevant for our time. We're not to think these are churches over there somewhere. We're to think, this is us. He's talking to people like us. And I have to say, as I've prepared um, these seven, they are incredibly profound. They are incredibly contemporary. They make me feel very uncomfortable. And at times, encouraged as well. But they are for people like us. So let's get into the text. Um, Do have your Bible open in front of you. That will help me and it will help you. And first of all, let's see, we have um, introductions, verse 1. So have a look down at verse 1. Uh, firstly, you've got the angel, and we'll see that week by week by week again. We'll talk about that, um, quite what that means as we go through. There are various ideas and arguments, but to boil it right down, it's either one of the leaders of the church, who in a sense represents the church, whether a human leader or in some way a sort of an angelic leader or a supernatural leader who who looks over and looks after the church. Or possibly it's the messenger, the letter carrier to the church. So it's the postman who's bringing the letter to the people of the church in Ephesus. Okay, so there's the first introduction is the angel. The second is Ephesus. Um, Ephesus begins, I I think we start with Ephesus because it's a key town. This is a vital, important place. It's a port entry into the area of Asia Minor of the time. Again, we'll do some maps next week. But it's situated on the Aegean Sea. It's at the mouth of the Caesta River. It's one of the greatest seaports of the ancient world. Centre for commerce, centre for travel. Three major roads leaving out of the seaport. One goes east to Babylon, one goes north to Smyrna, and one goes south to the Meander Valley. What that means is it's very prosperous. It's nice. It's comfortable. There was money there. It's the kind of place we might enjoy living in. So the angel, the town, and then thirdly, the speaker. Verse 1 again. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. As we said, that is a huge encouragement to know, for Christians to know that Jesus is with them in the midst of them, in the midst of their church. What they're going through, he sees. It's a huge encouragement, but actually as well, it's a huge challenge. Because it's not just what they're going through, he sees, but it's what they're doing, he sees as well. You see, that is the problem. He's with us, great, but he's with us. Oh boy, he knows what we're really like. So there's introductions, two to three, you've got encouragements. And he begins with three encouragements, and it's worth just focusing in on that as well in verses 2 to 3. It's important on the way past to note this, because some of us can be so down on ourselves, and so negative, and have such a strong sense of our own sin, of the reality of our fallenness. We're people with tender consciences, and we begin to think that the Lord only sees the bad. There's nothing good in us, we think, or we can easily think. There's nothing really that, that pleases him. And yet that isn't true. This side of heaven, in these bodies, there will always be a mixture of of good and sin in our lives. But do just note, the Lord sees the good. And so what's he pleased by as he looks at this church in Ephesus? 
Well, the first one in verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. Again, forgive alliteration, they are solid. This is a church of committed people, hard work, deeds, perseverance. You get the sense of long hours, of resilience, of resolve, of doggedness and determination. They are definitely a twice on Sunday kind of person. Here are a group of people who can fill a rotor in under five minutes, who shift chairs just for fun, who make cups of tea without even being asked to make cups of tea. They probably had a vision statement as well as a church. They knew that church wasn't just a Sunday thing. They they were committed. This is the kind of church that pastors look at enviously, longingly. If only my people were that committed and that solid. One person put it like this. This was a seven day a week church. Mums and toddlers groups on weekday mornings, home groups, student groups, youth groups, women's groups, inquirers groups, groups groups. It was the kind of church that made you busy, sometimes too busy. They are solid, but they're not just solid. Secondly, they're sound as well. Have a look, Jesus says, I know, it's another I know, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them false. You see, they're not just hard workers, but they care about the internal purity of the church. They, they don't stand for doctrinal error and contamination. The concept seems to be there were some false apostles going around at the time. Perhaps not the inner, the inner twelve apostles, but a fringe of people who were sent. Elsewhere in scripture we know there was a larger band of sort of recognised, legitimate apostles who took the message of Christ with them. But these ones in Ephesus, it seems, were phony and fake. John says they were wicked. And the church had discerned that, you see, and had stood against them. Now, if you know your Bibles and you're joining Docs Up, you might not be surprised to hear of this kind of thing going on in Ephesus. Think back to Acts as Paul leaves the Ephesian elders. The key warning that he leaves them, remember it was, keep watch over yourselves, And all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Why? Because I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So in Acts you get this idea of false teaching. They've been told to expect it. Lo and behold, there's false apostles who are causing problems. You get it as well if you know 2 Timothy a bit later on. Paul urging Timothy to guard the gospel. How do you guard the gospel? You faithfully pass it on to others who will pass it on to others. Again, if you look at history, you'll see that Ephesus was a hotchpotch of different ideas, worldviews, religions, powers. So it's interesting here, they have to take their, take their stand against false apostles. I guess people come, and I've got my story, and you've got your story, and who knows what's true. But they knew that they were not. So they tried to get rid of them. There's another group as well in verse 6, the Nicolaitans. I'm not going to say a huge amount about them, because we'll get them in a couple of weeks in Pergamon. And also not very much is known about them. What is known seems to be that the Nicolaitans apparently taught that some level of participation in kind of temple worship was still legit. Um, if you wanted to carry on doing the sort of pagan temple worship that you had done, then that's fine. And so it's a hotchpotch of different ideas mashed together. 
And, it, and if that's true, well, you can see why it's pretty attractive. Because in Ephesus, where there is this huge temple, then the economy would have been largely driven by conversations and trade linked to the temple. So if you become a Christian, and say, actually, I'm going to turn my back on the temple way of life, I'm going to lose that, it's going to be costly for you. So why not? Just keep your foot in the door. Just keep friendships going on there. Maybe just head back to the temple once a month or carry on with that kind of stuff. Again, the church had said no. No, they hated the practices of the Nicolaitans, verse 6. As did Jesus. So they're solid, they're sound, and thirdly, similar to some of the stuff we've been looking at in the morning, that they were prepared to deal with suffering as well, verse 3. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Maybe as a church together they were targeted, labelled, laughed at, disliked as a congregation simply for, for trying to be faithful, simply perhaps for turning their back on their old way of life. Maybe as individuals in their workplaces, their schools, the university, in the marketplace, in their families, they knew what it was to feel awkward and afraid. They knew how being different would make them stand out. And they were up to take facing the flak. It's easy as we go through these letters to sort of distance ourselves slightly from them to distance ourselves from some of the positives, because we know there's a challenge coming. We know there's a verse 4. We can be honest about that. But you see, if Jesus describes us as being solid and sound and being prepared to suffer for the Gospel, I reckon we'd be pretty happy. Don't you think? Wouldn't you like to be in a church like that? A solid, hard-working church? A, a, a church who who are prepared to suffer, a, a, a church who are doctrinally sound, who care about internal purity. Wow, he noticed. He sees the good and he encourages it, and yet we get on to verse 4. Verse 4 to 5a, it's a challenge. Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Isn't it convicting? I hope you're feeling uncomfortable, because I am. That they were a church that laboured, they were a church that maintained doctrinal purity, they were a church that were prepared to suffer for the gospel, but they'd lost their first love. Do you know there are two ways to kill a marriage? Firstly, there's simple immorality, there's one person meets someone at the office or on the sports team or wherever it is and, and runs off with them. Of course, probably there were issues before that, but essentially it's one person jumping into bed with somebody else and it's game over. But secondly, there's, there's the slow drift. Think of the proverbial newlyweds. Joy on wedding day, excitement of honeymoon, setting up house together, new routines, all this kind of stuff. And then, and then fast forward a couple of years down the line. And things are a bit hard. And there's a distance that's kind of creeping in. And their hearts aren't quite aligned as they used to be. There are niggles and frustrations and, and doubts and some squabbles and a little bit of going to bed angry with each other. There's coldness, there's drift. Lives have slowly just gone further and further apart. 
Maybe on the outside even things look okay. Maybe things seem to be functioning. But behind the scenes it's dead. Maybe that's something of what's happened in Ephesus. This wasn't a walk out of the marriage by the Christians. They hadn't walked out on Christ into another religion or wholesale back into temple worship or into bed with non-Christians or just merely church going or apathy. They seem to be pretty active still. But there's a slow, almost imperceptible cooling down that's happened. Scary, isn't it? Can you associate with that? Something of that? Think of the palpable joy and excitement, perhaps, if you're here as a Christian this evening, coming to faith and the spiritual honeymoon period, prayer is spontaneous, Bible reading's a breeze, evangelism is almost natural, you can't help the gospel sort of bubbling out of you into the lives of your friends or people you see. But then you settle down and there are hoops to jump through. And you sort of take on Christian responsibilities and then comes the over-busyness of the Christian life and and sin, you just kind of tolerate it now. You hated it at first, but now you tolerate it. And it's to be expected. You don't deal with it. And we learn to play the game. And maybe before you even know it, before you even spotted it, the relationship has cooled off and it's just a shell of activity and appearances. And in the early days, many younger Christians think, well, I would never be like that. I could never call off in that way. I remember doing it. This younger Christians looking at older Christians thinking, well, they've drifted and become cynical, a bit lukewarm. And your enthusiasm of your first love for Jesus, and you just don't get it. Why did they let it happen? And then the older Christians looking down at the young enthusiasts, enjoying their energy, but maybe slightly wistfully, critically, cynically, it'll pass just a phase, they'll grow out of it. But at heart they know better, they know something of the defensiveness that's going wrong. Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken the love you had at first, consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Now some of the commentators trying to diagnose this a bit more specifically and unpack particularly verse 4b and 5, I think, well, what is this love for Christ exactly that he's talking about? Because he's asking them to do the things you did at first. And so I think lots of them want to say that this love for Christ is actually seen in a particular action, a particular thing they've stopped doing, and they think it's particularly witnessing externally outreach evangelism. Which is why he says... Do the things. So we know they were active. Verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. But they stopped doing something that they used to do. Something that's linked with their love for the Lord. And then it's interesting then, why did he talk about removing lampstands in verse 5 as well? Now we've already spoken in the previous series, back in chapter 1, Um, of this idea of lampstands. And it's a picture that speaks of God's presence with his people in the first first case. They were were temple ornaments used in worship in the tabernacle of the temple. Um, But they're also there to shine light. And so the church is described as a lampstand. I think with both of those things in mind, one is 
the lampstand is the presence of God among his people, but two, the lampstand is also the presence of God in the world. He shines through his people to the world. It's a witness in a dark world. That's probably what John is trying to get at, what Jesus is trying to get at through John. And so when he says, I will take your lampstand away, it's as if he's saying, I will take my presence away from you and your witness to the world will be gone as well. I think that's probably what the obedience thing is. Something like it anyway. Without this love for Jesus, without this love for Jesus, so the, the lamp will be snuffed out and they'll be gone. Maybe your question is, how is it possible to be a church? How is it possible even to be a Christian? A, a, a church who is solid, who is sound, and who is prepared to suffer, and yet not love the Lord Jesus. How? I think it's really easy. Why are we here this evening? Habit, routine, it's just what we do on a Sunday night. It's what we do, we go to home groups, that's what, what it's about. We have a habit or a routine that we do mindlessly. Maybe it's peer pressure. I was asked to do this role, and so I will carry on doing this role. Or everyone else seems to be doing it, so I'd better do it as well. Maybe it's a job. To just be honest, the fact that I'm preaching to you this evening doesn't tell you anything about my relationship with the Lord Jesus. Maybe it's one-upmanship. Sometimes we like to be sound and doctrinally sharp, and it almost becomes a game among us, or a game among other churches. Just like the Pharisees, we can love doctrine, we love ideas, we can love philosophy, but we miss the Lord. Maybe it's duty. Maybe it's dogged duty. And we know in our heart of hearts that our love for Jesus has actually has gone or is going. I think this is really important stuff. It might be an opportunity this week just to take a 20 minutes or a bit of time with this passage in your hands and to pray and to ask the Lord to help us to examine our hearts again. But we can't just read verses like this and not ask the question, how is my love for the Lord doing? And it's not just verses that we can have sort of as ideas, but actually they really matter as well. And so finally in 5b we get the warning that we've spoken of. The warning of the lampstand being removed. Jesus says, if you don't shine any more for me, then I won't allow you to shine for me. You will not have the eternal life. I will remove my presence from you. It's a warning. And the thing about warnings in the Bible is that they are there to warn us, clearly. They are there to make us repent, to change, to modify our behaviour. So imagine this. Imagine I'm um, walking to school in the morning as I do, um, with the kids, and we're crossing the Iffley Road, and there's a maniac driver coming towards us far too fast, or a bike coming towards us far too fast, probably more likely. And I say to them, quick kids, get out of the way, there's a maniac coming on the road. What's the correct response from the children? Is it to carry on dawdling, to carry on daydreaming, to carry on squabbling with each other, or is it to change their behaviour? 
Is it to run? Well, so here Jesus warns the Ephesian church and he wants them to change their behaviour. He doesn't want them to analyse and admire what he's saying to them. He wants them to repent, to find the first love again. That foundational relationship that will fuel their service, their outreach. And if they do repent, well, verse 7, the promise is, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Imagery from later on in the book. Each of the promises you'll get will be imagery from later on in Revelation. A life of intimacy with God. Promise of life forever. It's a no-brainer. Turn back to him. So I have to say, friends, if that is you, if you know this is speaking to you, then let me urge you to hear his voice and to return to him and to love him and to shine for him. I want to say that is where the formal bit of the sermon ends because that is where we draw stumps and we dealt with the first seven verses of Revelation 2. But I think it's probably important to tell you a bit more as well. As far as we know, the Ephesian church didn't listen. There is no archaeological data that we can come up with that shows a Christian church in Ephesus after about 100 AD. So maybe 30 to 40 years later, after this this letter was written, there was nothing. And so as far as we can tell, he he took the lampstand away. This was a real warning. He wasn't mucking around. He said, return to me. He said, repent. He said, rekindle your first love. And the evidence seems to show that they didn't. And so as we pray for ourselves as individuals, as we pray for us as a church, let's take it seriously. Because actually Jesus isn't joking around. And so let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we confess that we find verses like this very challenging. And so we pray that you would help us. Where perhaps we have forsaken you or forsaken the love that we had at first, would you rekindle that flame in our hearts? Would you cause us afresh to see the glory of the Lord Jesus, his beauty, his kindness, the reality of the gospel of grace with those truths that perhaps we've become familiar with become fresh again. And as we as we love you again rekindle in us that desire to to share you with others. Would you know our our lack of courage You know the different voices that we wrongly listen to and the way we don't speak when perhaps we should. So please be at work, we pray. Help us to heed your warning. And with your help, help us to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.